This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Just to recall Lama Yeshi's words, which I quoted right at the beginning. He said, The reason we are unhappy is because we have extreme craving for sense objects, samsaric objects, and we grasp at them. We're seeking to solve our problems, but we're not seeking in the right place. The right place is our own ego grasping. We have to loosen that tightness. That's all. According to the Buddhist point of view, monks and nuns are supposed to hold renunciation vows. The meaning of monks and nuns renouncing the world is that they have less craving for and grasping at sense objects. Renunciation is a totally inner experience. Renunciation of samsara doesn't mean you throw samsara away because your body and nose are samsara. How can you throw your nose away? Your mind and body are samsara. Well, at least mine are. So I cannot throw them away. Therefore, renunciation means less craving. It means being more reasonable instead of putting too much psychological pressure on yourself and acting crazy. The most important point for us to know then is that we should have less grasping at sense pleasures because most of the time our grasping at and craving desire for worldly pleasure does not give us satisfaction. That's the main point. It leads to more dissatisfaction and psychologically crazier reactions. That's the main point. If you have the wisdom and method to handle objects of the five senses perfectly, such that they do not bring negative reactions, it's all right for you to touch them. And as human beings, we should be capable of judging for ourselves how far we can go into the experience of sense pleasure without getting mixed up and confused. We should judge for ourselves. It's completely up to individual experience. It's like French wine. Some people cannot take it at all. Even though they would like to, The constitution of their nervous system doesn't allow it. But other people can take a little. Others can take a bit more. Others can take a lot. So that's Lama Yeshi's fairly clear explanation of what is meant by renunciation. In Lama Tsongkhapa's text, renunciation is covered by the lines, Listen with clear minds, you fortunate ones, who direct your minds to the path pleasing to the Buddha and strive to make good use of leisure and opportunity without being attached to the joys of cyclic existence. For you embodied beings, bound by the craving for existence, without the pure determination to be free from the ocean of existence, there is no way for you to pacify the attractions to its pleasurable effects. Thus, from the outside, from the outset, seek to generate the determination to be free. By contemplating the leisure and endowment so difficult to find and the fleeting nature of your life, Reverse the clinging to this life. By repeatedly contemplating the infallible effects of karma and the miseries of cyclic existence, reverse the clinging to future lives. 
By contemplating in this way, do not generate even for an instant the wish for the pleasures of a psychic existence. When you have, day and night unceasingly, the mind aspiring for liberation, then you have generated the determination to be free. Now we covered those lines before I went on retreat, and what follows then are lines on bodhicitta, the mind to attain enlightenment to benefit all beings in the best way possible. But now before we go on to that, let's think about our motivation for participating in this program as we usually do. Bodhicitta, of course, is the best motivation as I've said many times before. Why? Because it's focused on the ultimate and conventional benefit of countless beings, not just one or two. So if we can generate such a motive, it will be much better than any other focused on just our own welfare. With this then in mind, let's try at least to awaken a little of the mind of enlightenment, bodhicitta, and motivate that this program becomes the cause for enlightenment for all beings, even those who have no idea about it. Thank you. Now to continue with the Lama Tsongkhapa text. It says, However, if your determination to be free, that is renunciation, is not sustained by the pure altruistic intention, bodhicitta, it does not become the cause for the perfect bliss of unsurpassed enlightenment. Therefore the intelligent generate the supreme thought of enlightenment. Now if you've been following these programs from the beginning, I probably can't tell you much more about bodhicitta because we covered it so extensively when we went through Shantideva's work, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. However, for those who have only recently tuned in, and to refresh our own minds, we will look at it again more briefly in the context of this text. Often when you ask people new to the Dharma, what is bodhicitta, they will tell you it means being compassionate to all beings, or something like that. In fact, bodhicitta is much more. It has two aspects. Firstly, it means that realizing that all beings are like oneself in wanting happiness and not wanting suffering, one takes on the responsibility to free them from suffering and help them reach ultimate bliss, which is all very noble and far-seeing. But if someone like myself examines whether I can do it or not, I'll have to admit that in my present state I can hardly help myself, never mind all other beings in existence. I had a good example of this in my retreat recently when my mind divorced from its usual diversions and distractions showed me how addicted it is to conjuring up fantasies and fears and believing in them. The hut I was in is on a mountain overlooking some absolutely fantastic views that stretched in front and to the left over forest and mountains to the sea. On the right and behind is bush almost kissing the hut itself which is on a property of many acres of forest. It's truly idyllic. Nobody goes out to this hut without a definite purpose, as it's a two-hour trek through the forest and some very steep country, so it's very secluded and isolated. The door to the hut is a ranch slider without a catch or lock, but it's quite heavy, so the small animals that populate the area like possums and rats have little chance of opening it. The biggest animals are pigs, but I never saw any of them while I was there, and the area around the hut shows no evidence that they ever venture that far up. So I was, in fact, almost perfectly safe in this beautiful environment. But soon after I settled in, my mind developed a conviction that hunters were going to come and cause me trouble. Of course, I basically knew that I was being ridiculous, 
But that didn't stop this fearful, eye-focused mind making up stories of what the hunters could do to make my life miserable. A couple of hunters dressed in camouflage did one day pass by. At least I think they were hunters. But they crept past so respectfully that if I hadn't glanced up from my practice when I did, I wouldn't have even known they were there. Uh, that's the extent of my predictive powers. It is the self-focused mind that causes all our problems and prevents us from developing the mind of bodhicitta. So scared of what others may do to us, how they may threaten our bodies or our cherished beliefs and attitudes, we shy away from opening ourselves and learning how best to be of benefit. Being able to see beyond the self-addicted mind leads to the second aspect of bodhicitta, the understanding that to be completely free of self-addiction, I will have to attain enlightenment myself. You see, as long as I believe in a real self existing in this body and mind, I will always be afraid of the hunters. I will always regard them at some level as my enemy and a threat. It's only when I'm completely liberated from this belief, in other words, when I'm enlightened, that I can fully open up to others, even the hunters, when they do come around and act truly altruistically. For then I will be well past the habit of slotting others into the categories of friend, enemy and stranger. So if I want to help others to be free of all suffering by guiding them to enlightenment, I need to be enlightened myself, as only then will I have all the knowledge and mental tools to achieve my aim. Thus we define bodhicitta as the intention to become enlightened to best benefit all sentient beings. And you can see how this is different from merely developing compassion for all beings. We have to keep in mind two things here. One is that although a bodhicitta is primarily focused on helping others to become enlightened, that doesn't mean we don't help them in more limited ways. I can take another instance from my retreat to de demonstrate this. I drank and washed in water that came from a tank that collected rainwater from the roof of the hut. The tank was not enclosed, nor was it screened in any way from the debris, including insect bodies, rat bird and possum poo and so on, that collected on the roof. Mosquitoes found this gruel perfect to lay their eggs in, so invariably, when I turned on the tap for some water, tiny creatures would be swimming around among the wings, exoskeletons and bits of who knows what was in the water. These creatures were sometimes so small I couldn't see them just by peering in. So I shone a flashlight into the water and, perhaps out of embarrassment or perhaps anxiety to escape the glare, they would wriggle ever so frantically. From that, I took it that they would be much happier with their murky companions in the dark swimming pool that was their birthing place and scooped them up with enough water to pour them back into the tank. Even though I knew that such would be their gratitude, that after a week or so they would emerge transformed and come back as mosquitoes in search of my blood. The point is that when we are trying to develop bodhicitta, we have to help other beings in whichever way we can, even if it may not lead them directly to enlightenment. So we have to save lives, give protection and avoid harming wherever we can. The other thing to keep in mind is that we ourselves are sentient beings and so deserving of as much compassion as any other being. 
Just because we may aspire to bodhicitta, we should in no way exclude ourselves from the mass of sentient beings to be helped. Consequently, we need to develop loving-kindness and compassion towards ourselves. In fact, we need to do this before anything else. For if we don't, how can we truly hope to develop loving-kindness and compassion for others? The teachers often say that our concern for others comes from our concern for ourselves. When we experience suffering, it can help us to understand how all other beings are similarly suffering. Remember the quote from Lama Yeshi earlier in the series of programs. Bodhicitta is like this, he wrote. First you have to understand your own ego problems, craving, desire, anger, impatience, your own situation, your inability to cope, your own disasters, within yourself, and feel compassion for yourself. Because of the situation you're in, start by becoming the object of your own compassion. It begins from there. This situation I'm in, I'm not the only one with ego conflict and problems. In all the world's societies, some people are upper class, some middle and others low. Some are extremely beautiful, some are medium and others are ugly. But just like me, everybody seeks happiness and does not desire to be miserable. In this way, a feeling of equilibrium begins to come. Somehow, deep within you, equilibrium towards enemies, strangers and friends arises. It's not merely intellectual, but something really sincere. It comes from deep down, from the bottom of your heart. Buddhism teaches you the meditational technique for equalizing all living beings in the universe. Without a certain degree of equilibrium, feeling with all universal living beings, it's impossible to say, I want to give my life to others. Nor is it possible to develop bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is most precious, a diamond mind. In order to have space for bodhicitta, you have to feel that all universal living beings are equal. The point is that Buddhism considers that we should have realization of equilibrium because we need a healthy mind. Equalizing others is something to be done within my mind, not by changing human beings externally. My business is not to be bothered by mental projections of disliked enemy, grasped at friend or forgettable strangers. These three categories of object are made by my own mind. They do not exist outside. You should practice equilibrium in your daily life as much as you can. Try to have neither enemies nor objects of tremendous exaggerated grasping. In this way, in the space of your equilibrium, you can grow bodhicitta, the attitude dedicated to all universal living beings. Bodhicitta is an extremely high realization. It is the complete opposite of the self-cherishing attitude. You completely give yourself into the service of others in order to lead them to the highest liberation, which is beyond temporary happiness. And then he goes on, If you don't want to understand bodhicitta as an attitude dedicated to others, and sometimes it can be difficult to understand it in that way, you can also think of it as a selfish attitude. Why? In practice, when you begin to open yourself to others, you find that your heart is completely tied. Your I or your ego is tied. Lama J. Tsongkhapa described the ego as an iron net of self-grasping. How do you loosen these bonds? When you begin to dedicate yourself to others, you, you, accept, you yourself experience unbelievable peace, unbelievable relaxation. Therefore, I am saying, with a selfish attitude of wanting 
to experience that peace and relaxation, you can practice dedicating yourself to others. And that's Lama Yeshi. From the Mayana point of view, one cannot become a Buddha if one does not develop bodhicitta. With the experiential understanding of selflessness developed through single-pointed concentration and special insight, one can become liberated as an arhat, but such a being does not have the omniscience or the qualities of a Buddha. Geshe Sonam Rinchen, in his commentary, says as much. He writes, With intense wish for freedom from cyclic existence, everything virtuous we do brings us closer to liberation. But without the altruistic intention, it cannot become a cause for our highest enlightenment. Clairvoyant powers and the ability to perform miraculous feats do not become Mahayana qualities, nor can they act as causes for peerless enlightenment unless they are backed by the altruistic intention. The altruistic intention here, of course, means bodhicitta. He continues, Though heroes and solitary realize of foe destroyers have freed themselves from the cycle of involuntary birth and death and possess qualities as great and as precious as a mountain of gold, they cannot attain complete enlightenment because they lack the altruistic intention. The understanding of reality alone is not powerful enough to overcome the obstructions to knowledge of all phenomena. It can only do so when it is combined with skillful means. Now I'd like to make two observations here. Firstly, Geshe Sonam Rinchen is the only Lama I've ever taken teachings from in the Tibetan tradition that has praised in any way the Arhats, of which there are two types, the hearers and solitary realizers. Briefly, the hearers attain liberation by practicing taking teachings and then themselves teaching in the company of others, while solitary realizers have such positive imprints on their minds from their previous lives that they go off to practice and attain the liberation on their own. Going back to the traditional Tibetan view of arhats mostly, and as Geshe Sonam Rinchen does later, the lamas only mention arhats to point out how much better the bodhisattvas are, which I personally find unfortunate. To attain liberation is an incredible achievement, and from my limited perspective, we should really venerate those who have done it. In one teaching that I attended, Geshe Sonam Rinchen praised the arhats and said that we must not mistake their compassion. They feel much, much more compassion for us than we do for ourselves. Now if that's so, how can we not pay them great respect, even though they may not yet feel up to working over countless eons to lead all beings to liberation and enlightenment? And in the Theravadan tradition, the Arhats are part of the Mahasanga, the noble community of those free from samsara, and are held in the highest esteem. But the Mahayana I have experienced appears defensive and seems to put them down with a continual unfavorable comparison to the Bodhisattvas. The other observation is that in the same way that the understanding of reality alone cannot lead one to Buddhahood, Bodhicitta alone cannot even lead one to liberation, never mind Buddhahood. The door to liberation from suffering is the understanding of reality. Through this understanding and this understanding alone, both arhats and bodhisattvas are freed from all suffering. So once again, we should keep this in mind in what follows. To encourage the wish to develop bodhicitta, Geshe Sonam Rinchen says that we th- should think of its many benefits 
and goes on to list a few which he has called from Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. So you may have heard of them before. He writes, If you were to churn the milk of Buddha's teachings, the altruistic intention would be the butter. Once you develop it, both humans and celestial beings pay homage to you. Your presence brings happiness and well-being to the place you live. The altruistic intention is a wellspring of both your own and others' good and a medicine that heals the troubles of the world. It dispels the dangers associated with remaining in a state of solitary peace. Here, by remaining in a state of solitary peace, he is referring to the Arahats, who have passed beyond samsaric existence. In other words, they have attained liberation and no longer have to take rebirth under the compulsion of karma and afflictive emotion. There are no actual dangers as we might think of danger in such a state. After all, the arhat is past beyond all suffering and fear, never to experience them again. However, from a Mahayana perspective, the danger is not having overriding concern for others and so leaving them to their ongoing suffering. Continuing with a list of benefits, Geshe Sonam Rinchen writes, Though your wisdom may not equal that of hearers and solitary realizers, from the point of view of your family, you outshine them the moment you develop the altruistic intention because you've become a bodhisattva. Even the smallest action performed with the intention to gain enlightenment for the sake of all living beings, such as giving a bird a few crumbs of bread, becomes the marvelous deed of a bodhisattva. Virtue created with this underlying intention is inexhaustible. When anyone develops the altruistic intention, Buddhas rejoice as though a son or daughter had been born to them and they bless the new bodhisattva. For other bodhisattvas, it's like the birth of a beloved sibling. The altruistic intention is the quintessential practice of all bodhisattvas and the seed of all magnificent qualities possessed by the enlightened ones. The nun Tupton Chodron follows the Lam Rim in her discussion of the benefits, the first being that bodhicitta is the gateway into the Mahayana. It's the only gateway for entering the Mahayana. There's no back door, she says. You cannot bribe your way into Bodhisattva land. It doesn't matter how many Bodhisattvas you know who are friends of your family who are willing to do you favors. It doesn't matter what company you've been a trustee of. Aside from generating their altruistic intention, there's no other way to enter the Mahayana. All our worldly connections don't work and we can't bribe our way in. So you know, whoever is there is someone really good who got there through their own merit. She then admits that it might all sound a bit strange but says the more you think about it, the more you can develop admiration for the Bodhisattva intention. She says, I know for myself personally the more I learned about what Bodhisattvas do, and Bodhisattvas are beings who have this altruistic intention, the more I learned about what they do, how they practice, how they think and feel, the greater admiration I had for them. Even though what they are doing is way beyond me, I want to become like them. I mean, why not? We might as well want to have a good role model in our life. Doing it or not is another question. But if we don't have that aim, we're definitely never going to get there. From the Buddhist viewpoint, we all have the potential to get there. It might take us a while, a lifetime, an eon, a few eons, but we have lots of time. And what else are we going to do? 
If you don't develop a kind heart and practice love and compassion, what else are you going to do in your life? Go to work, make money, get stressed out and die? Doesn't sound like much fun. If you have a commitment to really develop this kind of altruistic intention, then it doesn't really matter what what else happens in your life because you are doing something worthwhile and good. She also mentions becoming part of the family of the Buddha. In the Lam Rim terminology, it's expressed by you will become a child of the Buddha. And in the various texts studied by the Tibetans, Bodhisattvas are often called children of the Buddhas. Anyway, Tibetan Children writes, You will receive the name a child of the Buddha. Now for us again, sometimes we go, Well, so what? A child of the Buddha? Child of my parents? Why should I want to be called a child of the Buddha? Well, we learn from our parents, don't we? Our parents teach us many things. Our ordinary parents taught us how to talk, how to eat, and they toilet trained us, thank goodness. We learn many things from them. The Buddha, as our spiritual parent, can teach us amazing things. A child often follows in their parents' footsteps. At least in ancient times they very much did. Being a spiritual child of the Buddha is like we're in that family. We're on our way to emulating our parents and learning from our parents. In this case, our parents being the Buddha and our siblings other bodhisattvas. So it's nice to be in that kind of family. Then she's quite perceptive and funny when she considers the advantage of becoming an object of the highest respect and offering as soon as we generate bodhicitta. You know, as Geshe Sonom wrote, once you develop it, both humans and celestial beings pay homage to you. Now, ego likes this one, says Tupton Children. Have you noticed that ego says, Enter the gateway of the Mahayana? So what? Become a child of the Buddha? So what? Gain respect and offerings? Oh, that one sounds good. So have you noticed how how our ego works? This tells us something about our values. A bodhisattva actually doesn't care about respect and offering. A bodhisattva has renounced all of those. From the side of ego, we don't want to generate altruism so that everybody can think that we're really nice because that just corrupts our motivation. The reason that it's expressed in this way is that in our world, those who are highly respected, we take more interest in and we value more. Those who receive offerings, you know, the powerful people, the rich people, we tend to pay more attention to. What it's saying here is that when we become spiritually advanced, when we have this altruistic intention, then people who have those kinds of values will pay attention. We'll be able to lead them on the path. For example, you look at His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He's an object of respect and offering, isn't he? People worldwide respect him and they make offerings. He gives them away. But he's regarded for what he has attained. Because the Dalai Lama has that regard, he can use it in a positive way to influence people, to help them deal with the problems that they face and to create a very loving atmosphere. She then quotes an article published in the New York Times about a speech given by His Holiness. It's very nice, she says, because in the middle of what is going on in the world today, His Holiness talks about the necessity of positive qualities. He cites scientific evidence for the possibility of their development and the value of their development. If I wrote that piece, nobody would listen because I'm not an object of respect and offering. But if His Holiness writes it, they publish it in the New York Times and people will read it. That can influence others in a very positive way and give people a sense of hope and optimism. And with that, time is up and we have to leave the other advantages of bodhicitta until next time. Thanks for joining us today 
and please dedicate any positive energy we've generated to gaining enlightenment to be of greatest benefit of all beings. In other words, bodhicitta. I hope you'll join us again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.